This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Thank you. It's good to see everybody. It's great to be back again. I have one little plug before I start my planned talk. This afternoon I had a chance to go and see the movie Alive Inside. I don't know if you've heard of that. It is about the role of um, music and iPod and headphones used uh, as therapy for people in nursing homes. And it is um, quite a miraculous connection for some of them back into who they really are and who they remember themselves to be. And because it's kind of a tie-in with what I'm talking about tonight, I just wanted to mention it. It's at the Prune Yard, uh, Camera 7. I don't know if it's showing anywhere else. It may not be. It's a documentary, and um, it's worth your time, I think. So, good evening. And the quote that I read during our meditation is from Samanta Bhadra, who is a bodhisattva. That's a mouthful of syllables. Probably you know that a bodhisattva means an awake being who works for the enlightenment of all beings. Samantra Bhadra states beautifully some ways in which the awake one can do the work of compassionate service. Please notice the different spheres of life in which an awake one might serve. I'm going to repeat the quote. May I be a good, may I be a good doctor for those who suffer from illness, a guide for those who have gone astray, a lamp for those who dwell in darkness, a source of treasure for those in poverty and need, a doctor, a guide, a lamp, a source. These are all ways to be with others through the extraordinary and the ordinary suffering of life. Some types of service uh, come easily to mind. Hospice companions, volunteer hospital chaplains, people like me who work in prisons and jails. These are often the people we think of doing service, but I want to look at compassionate service in a wider sense tonight. I want you to see how personal and individual service can be, and that no matter what form it takes, wisdom and compassion are its foundations. There are people offering the best of themselves, doing their service in privacy or through not very widely known organizations. I'm going to tell you about some of them tonight, real people, people that you and I know, who might be an inspiration to ready yourself to start down a path of active compassion. Of course, compassionate service is not reserved for Buddhists. All great spiritual traditions teach in their own way the importance of setting aside ego and serving others. Listen to how spiritual teachers describe ego release. Richard Rohr, an ecumenical teacher and a Franciscan priest, says, Our heart space, our mind space, and our body awareness all simultaneously open and become non-resistant. Henri Nguyen, a priest, a psychologist, a widely respected teacher in spirituality, called it, this is a lovely 
image, the creation of an empty but friendly space where you can hear and be with the story of the other. Buddhist chaplaincy teacher Paul Holler says, no didactic learning substitutes for an open presence, an open heart, and a willingness to be totally present for the suffering that arises. Paul reminds us that intellectual understanding may be helpful, but will not of itself lead to the presence, mindfulness, heartfulness, and emptiness that allows compassion to flower into service. That's why I would like to emphasize the importance of getting a good, solid spiritual practice under your belt, into your belly, into your mind and heart. Whatever our spiritual path is, we have to take it seriously, not as a casual self-help seminar. For Buddhists, a solid spiritual practice consists of what we do here, learning the Buddha's way, meditation, dharma, the life of intentional virtue. We investigate suffering and see its cause, craving. We abandon craving in its various forms and realize that's how suffering ends. We develop the Eightfold Path with its steps leading to wisdom, compassion, and concentration. And sooner or later, as we walk further and further into this path, there is a natural expansion of the heart, almost as if the benefits of our practice are too much to contain within and must come forth into the world. That is when we really become receptive to the possibilities around us to offer service. We may actively begin to search for a way to serve, or that way may find us. However it comes, we are ready. It is said the heart quivers when it realizes the suffering all around. And when we are ready, and a possibility comes, that quiver begins to beat in a strong rhythm, ready for action. Zen Roshi, Diane Musho Hamilton, says of this readiness, we don't, have to be, we don't have to heroically take the world on our shoulders, but we might have to be willing to share our skills and understanding when the time comes. Service is the fulfillment of our practice, at the right time, it feels as natural as ripe fruit falling from a tree. Service is the fulfillment of our practice. The people I'll talk about tonight are Buddhist, Protestant, Catholic. The beautiful thing is how authentic each person is. Their service and their spiritual lives are all of a piece. Joined circle a wise, compassionate awareness and action that nourishes them deeply and benefits the world. And you will see through what they do that service doesn't have to be organizational or public or worldwide. In fact, for you, as for some of them, it might be as close as your neighbor, your partner, your child, an aging parent, a friend. First, here are two short, true stories about how personal service can be. A few years ago, through IMC's uh, Audio Dharma courses, I mentored a meditation student who had a husband, 
a house and four children, including one child with special needs. She thought there was no time in her life to meditate, let alone serve. But when her special needs child was sick one day, home from school, she lay down in bed with this boy and she matched her breathing to his. The fussy child calmed and slept and she calmed and became mindful and had the realization that actually her life had plenty of ways for wise, compassionate presence. She understood that serving could happen exactly where she was within her family. A different woman who came to San Jose Insight for a time uses a big service dog to help her with mobility issues. In the early stage of her disability, she felt she couldn't stand having so much loss But then she learned how to train her big pet dog into a service dog, and he became a real professional. Now she and her dog go to veterans groups to demonstrate their mutual love and activities and how they make life better. And the vets learning to work with their own service dogs find hope. The people I'll tell you about now allowed me to interview them for this talk. They have given permission to use their names and stories here. Gil Fransdahl says that our normal human tendency is to move away from suffering and to search for happiness. These people walk with suffering for the sake of others. Nothing special, they might say, just what I do. You may know Lois from this sangha where she was quite active. Lois told me, for a year and a half, I've been a sort of life coach to a friend who suffered brain injury in a car accident. This is her second brain injury from a car accident. We don't know for sure the extent she can recover this time. Lois said, my past life did not prepare me for this role. I was type A, career-oriented, hypertense, but I knew there was something more to life. After finally getting some spiritual direction, I got into Buddhist practice. That was the start of a big change of direction, she said. Got me about 90% through the curve. But compassion was one thing that always escaped me. I was trying to find it, she said. Something inside was saying, you need to find compassion. And then the accident happened. Since that day... Our lives are intertwined because my friend has many needs, and it takes two of us to keep her on track. For, this wor- uh, for now, she said, this work is my practice, and I couldn't do it without mindfulness. I help keep my friend organized. She can't drive, so I take her to appointments and shopping. The hardest thing for me to learn, Lois said, was to accept the decisions she is making for herself, decisions about her life. Some of her goals, like driving again, are probably unrealistic. But as difficult as as things have been, I admire her. I respect her willingness to work so hard on simple life skills, like writing a sentence, following a recipe, I respect her determination not to give up, to get back the life qualities that she remembers she used to have. Listen to this. Lois reflected, I must say 
then I do not think of my actions as service, only love. My actions now are not coming from a head filter, but a heart filter instead. Lois's heart has led her to be the main supporter through her friend's complicated and lengthy brain injury recovery. Lisa has also been part of the Sangha. She told me, after 20 years, I decided to complete a Master of Science degree in environmental studies. I also took Sati Center chaplaincy training. My Buddhist practice was growing. She said, I love this, if I choose to do something big and hard, I like it to matter. So I was looking for the kind of engagement that makes a difference in the world, has a moral aspect. We can learn and be told information, Lisa thinks, but that's not enough. We have to engage with the heart, not just the head, not just the intellect. There's that expanding heart again. Lisa told me that she co-facilitates and also program manages the Insight Garden program at San Quentin Prison. She goes there nearly every Friday. She said we have a vegetable garden and an ornamental organic native garden that we've had almost 12 years. In her class, men learn outer gardening, which is practical skills and big picture environmental issues, and they learn inner gardening, meditation, metta, self-understanding. For my thesis, Lisa said, I interviewed a lot of inmates, did a lot of listening to how they change when they're introduced to what we teach in our program. They talked about the things they used to care about and how they often can't go back to their old mindset anymore. Lisa observed a pattern among these men. She said they were learning the true power that comes from what we can give rather than what we take. Lisa told me that describes well her own experience doing prison work. What we can give rather than what we can take. There's the open heart again. Marilyn is a friend of mine, a Catholic. For years, she's been a, ca a pastoral care minister. That is a lay Catholic who brings communion to church members who are unable to attend Mass. She has met and become involved with and sometimes over-involved with, as she puts it, wonderful old folks with wisdom and blessings to share. But in the past few years, as she began to know one woman, Marilyn realized that it was the woman's adult daughter who was the needier person in the house. Carol, and this is not the daughter's real name, Carol was her mother's caretaker. She was scrupulous about her mother's diet, cleanliness, medication, budget, but Carol herself was suffering from anxiety and ADD. She had complicated depression that sometimes required um, hospitalization. When Carol's mother eventually died, Carol's siblings moved her to a condo, but they kept their distance. Marilyn saw that Carol had no support system and was sliding into depression again. Marilyn thought, I began to realize Everybody needs a friend, and I could be that for Carol. But because of getting over-involved in other situations, I would have to work hard to keep within reasonable limits. 
but I felt like I could not ignore this opportunity which had somehow landed in my lap. Perhaps I even thought that I was uniquely suited to be a friend to Carol, with my reserves of patience and the ability to ignore her messy apartment and appearance. If I were to turn my back on her, Marilyn thought, I would be killing a piece of my soul. If I were to bury and hoard my talents instead of putting them to work, I would be denying the God nature in myself. These are my particular gifts, and I am meant to use them. So Marilyn has become a steady friend to, her, to Carol, spending a full day a week with her, taking her to church and home to family dinner some weekends, being available for rides and conversations and emergencies. Ellen was a college professor. She's a Protestant. She's attended San Jose Insight Meditation. Ellen has a deep interest in young people in the 18 to 24 age group. After her retirement from teaching, she was looking around for a new way to connect with these kids. Recently, she began volunteering at the Bill Wilson Center in San Jose, which I was not very familiar with. Ellen told me about the center. They provide resources for runaways and homeless older teens. Young people can register there, and then they can come in for services like showers, laundry, meals. They can take a cooking class, a street smart class. All kinds of life skills are taught there. It's a kind of tough love, though. We're glad to be here to help you out, and you have to help yourself out at the same time. Ellen said, my college students were privileged, but I saw the same problems in school that we see at Bill Wilson, like alcoholism, uh, troubled relationships, and especially low self-esteem. Ellen described her work at the center. What I do is, over four hours, I first help prepare breakfast and feed the kids, and then I just hang out. Later, I might prepare lunch. At first, it was once a week. Now we're shorthanded. It's twice a week. But while I'm spending time hanging out, I'm getting familiar with the teens, and they're getting to know me. Now I can ask, hey, did you find housing? Are you still living rough? Did you get that job? Administrative people, she said, where, uh, who work at Bill Wilson are mainly in their 30s, and they wear purple shirts that say staff on the front. But Ellen said, because I'm an older woman, people who come into the center think I'm in charge. So she said, I'm going to get a purple T-shirt, and it's going to say in big letters, volunteer. And here's the key for Ellen, because now I just want to be there for these kids. I want to be someone who pays attention to them listens to them, knows where they are in their lives, someone who cares, who gives follow-through attention. I spent my professional career with this age group. I understand who they are. They're not really so different from my students. They're living with hard conditions, but the center helps them stay clean and nourished, even if they're homeless right now. I want to be there for these kids. Ellen is pointing to a very important aspect of compassionate service. It's not about fixing, and it's not about helping. Dr. Rachel Naomi Remen, you may have heard of, is a nationally recognized medical uh, reformer and educator. 
who considers the practice of medicine to be a spiritual path and a path of service. She sees service this way. When I fix a person, I perceive them as broken. I do not see the wholeness, or I don't trust the integrity of their life. Fixing is a form of judgment, and judgment creates distance, an experience of difference. Lois is aware of that while helping her brain-injured friend. She said, I don't try to control or fix every situation every time my friend is rude to someone or gets angry because of her condition. My friend can't help it. She has to work so hard, use so much energy to do things that we all do automatically. Be in a group, follow a conversation, follow new directions. That is the accepting heart speaking. Connection is important, says Dr. Remen. We cannot serve at a distance. We can only serve that to which we are profoundly connected. Lisa described being with San Quentin inmates. They're edifying, she said. If you give them respect, they will respect you right back, quickly, and ten times over. She says, I say it often, they are very much my teachers, too. Marilyn reported, I really enjoy my friend Carol, and it does not feel like a chore spending time with her. She has learned my strengths and weaknesses and often gives me very good advice. We laugh a lot, and I think we are both pleasantly surprised that, as Maya Angelou said, we are more alike than we are unalike. That is true connection. Dr. Remen also reminds us that helping incurs debt. When you help someone, they owe you one. But serving is mutual. I am as served as the person I am serving. And here's an interesting distinction Dr. Remen makes. When I help, I have a feeling of satisfaction. When I serve, I have a feeling of gratitude. Lois expresses gratitude as a deeply felt sense. During our interview, she said, Satisfaction is not the right word, really. But in a deep way, this is so beautiful, in a deep way, I know I'm living the right life. I'm comfortable being there for my friend, and it's the right thing for me right now. Maybe not forever, but right now. I cannot imagine myself doing anything other than what I am doing. It's a great place. It's a fit. How wonderful when your life fits. Dr. Remen warns, over time, fixing and helping are draining, depleting. Over time, we burn out. But service is renewing. When we serve, our work will sustain us. Ellen observed, After my shift at Bill Wilson, I might feel tired because what I do is work, but the benefits to me are far greater than what I give them. Even though Ellen is relatively new in her work, she already appreciates what it does for her. This work makes me feel good, she says. Going to church refreshes my spirit. So do these kids. When I've been with them for three or four hours, it buoys me up. I'm on a real high from their energy. It makes me feel expanded. In the middle of myself, I feel broad, big, full of space. 
very different from when I'm tense and shrink inside. Ellen says, during my volunteer hours, I feel mindful every second. I am right there. And when I come out, somehow my mind is less burdened. It's refreshing. Marilyn calls her companionship with Carol enormously fulfilling. Everyone who takes up a path of service needs to grow and learn. And sometimes old habits or unskillful ways have to be unlearned. Ellen reported, in our training at Bill Wilson, we're taught how to maintain boundaries. As a professor, that was part of my job. I was good at boundaries. Now I need to learn how to remove formalities that stand in the way of personal interaction. I need to narrow the distance between us. Like how to come out from behind the desk and sit beside someone who's needing to talk. Lisa remembers her first days at San Quentin. When I first started this work, I noticed a sense of excited anxiety, she said, and I think I realized I was afraid that maybe they would break my heart. But it hasn't broken yet, she said. After they're released, some men get back in touch with us. Even if they are living in a shelter, I know they're doing well because I can hear they're taking a leadership role in the shelter, they're still the new men they are growing into. Lisa guesses that Buddhist practice is probably some protection against a broken heart. It's important being mindful, knowing the danger of expectations, of things being as I wish. So her expanded heart is still willing to engage over and over with the men at San Quentin. Marilyn confessed with a great deal of honesty, rereading about my Enneagram, number two, the helper, I recognize that being a helper is just my nature. And she bravely admits further, it is irritating to think that I enjoy helping people because it serves a deep need in myself. But that does seem to be how it is. I guess that this is how spirit is working in me, through my flaws as well as my strengths. This is very insightful. Through my flaws, as well as my strengths, because of her willingness to recognize the shadow side of her helpful nature, Marilyn has learned now to be careful about over-involvement that becomes needy over-helping. But she says, I constantly strive to keep my involvement with my friend Carol in pretty strict boundaries. She knows I'm available in an emergency and is good about not asking for help until she really needs it on other days. Carol respects my exercise schedule and my need to be with my other friends. So Marilyn has told us an open heart is mindful of healthy limits for itself and for others. Lois had a lot of waking up to do. She said, in the aftermath of my friend's accident, when she got out of the hospital, things were intense. Appointments, issues with her family, my doing all the cooking and cleaning and shopping that she couldn't do. Lois said, I lost my sense of self. I was getting depressed. I didn't realize it, but my friend did. She has a professional therapy background, and she saw my problem before I could. She made me promise to start taking days off 
and to come to her house later in the day to start getting my life back again. We began to go on walks for her benefit and mine, and these things are making a difference. Lois had to learn what everyone who serves must learn, how to take care of herself in the midst of the busyness and sometimes the chaos of serving others. Interviewing these compassionate servers, my last question to each one was, what advice would you give to someone who wants to start out doing what you are doing? Lois responded, what would I tell someone accompanying, accompanying another person through brain injury recovery? First, be prepared to let your ego go. That's pretty fundamental. And she said, you need lots of patience, lots of acceptance. For example, if my friend criticizes me, I feel it, but I let go right away. If we argue, I keep ego out of it. I'd say by now, in our interactions, I'm 80% successful leaving the ego out of things. That's pretty successful, if you ask me. But she admits, as any of us who serve would admit, if we are honest, I still make a lot of mistakes. I still try to fix things. Lisa's advice was, in prison work, be ready to be surprised. Before my first visit to San Quentin, Gil said we would meet some beautiful men. I was surprised to hear that. And most importantly, I was surprised at how surprised my response was. It's just not something you think about men in prison, that they're beautiful. But he was right. So my advice would be to arrive without assumptions. Marilyn suggested very practically, anyone considering a commitment to walk with a friend who has cognitive emotional challenges should search their heart and be sure they are suited to this kind of ministry. Service like this extends far beyond being thoughtful at the Safeway checkout counter. Perhaps you have a different gift to give. But, she said, if you feel there is absolutely no way you can turn your back on someone who needs your support, you must listen to the spirit, which we would call Buddha nature, and ask spirit to accompany you on the journey. Listen to Buddha nature and let wisdom and compassion be your companions in service. So I have some advice too. Frank Ostaseski, a Zen hospice volunteer, said it well. If we are going to be of service, we have to pay attention to what is immediately in front of us. Act with minimal intervention. And bring to the experience the same attention and equanimity we cultivate on our cushion. The degree we are willing and able to live in this ever-fresh moment is the measure of our ability to be of real service. The same attention and equanimity we cultivate in sitting meditation, that's what we need. And that's what a solid spiritual practice brings us. It brings us preparation and support for compassionate service. And that's basically my own advice. After nine years teaching meditation in Elmwood Jail, I would suggest that we need to know the importance of our own mindfulness, doing that work and in our own life. 
The time I spend every Friday being mindful while teaching mindfulness and meditation is a mysteriously powerful practice for me, much deeper than I could explain to you. Like Ellen, I am tired walking out of an afternoon in the jail. But also, as I walk out through that asphalt yard, through those chain-link fences and the slamming electronic locks, I feel good inside. I feel light. That's when I know, like Lois, that this work is the right place for me. It's a good fit right now. And as Marilyn suggests, the work I do, teaching in jail, may not be for everyone. But for me, it continues to be a lively, beneficial path. Why? I think it's because, as Lisa said of the men in her garden program, the women I teach mindfulness to in jail become my teachers. Together, we grow personal awareness. Our practice of respect and compassion and wisdom draws us into real connection. The bottom line is, working in jail makes me happy. So I suggest you beef up your own daily practice of meditation and mindfulness, realizing the Four Noble Truths in a very personal way. When your heart finds the rhythm of living Dharma, service will find you, and you will be willing and energized and ready. Listen to the words of Indian poet Rabindranath Tagore. I slept and dreamt that life was joy. I woke and found that life was service. I acted, and behold, service was joy. Service is the fulfillment of our practice. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.